This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Reopening is upon us, for now anyway. Across Canada, governments are loosening restrictions and workplaces are starting to come back to life. Is a return to normal within reach? And what will normal even look like in the near term? We'll speak to a public health expert about the prospects of vaccine research and about the science of going back to work. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we do say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain either legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. This episode features a guest from outside of McCarthy Tatro. I am therefore obliged to note that the information, views, and personal opinions expressed by our guest are entirely her own. Her appearance on this podcast does not express or imply an endorsement by McCarthy Tatro of the information, views, or opinions she has expressed or of any entity that she represents. Side effects of this podcast may include drowsiness, headache, insomnia, and cautious optimism. And yes, lawyers really do talk like that. Here's episode 17, History in the Making, We Hope. Human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, can cause a disease called Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. Scientists have known this since the early 1980s. In 1984, Margaret Heckler, who was then President Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Health and Human Services, confidently predicted that an AIDS vaccine would be ready for testing within two years. Thirty-six years and half a trillion dollars later, the world is still waiting. There are plenty of other cautionary tales. It took almost 40 years to develop a vaccine for polio, eight years for measles. The vaccine for mumps took four years to develop, and that is widely heralded as a feat of scientific speed. The dengue fever vaccine? That one took 76 years. COVID-19 is caused by a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. If the first part of that name sounds familiar, that's because SARS-CoV-2 is the successor to SARS-CoV-1. That's the virus that caused the SARS outbreak in 2003 and 2004. SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Another coronavirus causes MERS, or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. We don't have a vaccine for SARS, and we don't have a vaccine for MERS. We also don't have a vaccine for another disease caused by another coronavirus, the common cold. If these parallels aren't yet testing your optimism, here's another one. Coronaviruses are RNA viruses. That means their genetic material is made of RNA rather than DNA. HIV is an RNA virus too. So is the hepatitis C virus. And so is the West Nile virus. We don't have vaccines for any of these, although we do have vaccines for other diseases caused by RNA viruses like rabies, polio, and measles. 
I'll stop there, but my point is this. There are plenty of reasons to be confident in the world's efforts to develop a vaccine for the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, but we have to acknowledge the possibility that they might not succeed, at least not anytime soon. But let's focus on the good news for a moment. The director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Anthony Fauci, said on June 23rd that we could see favorable vaccine candidates with good results by the end of this year, that is 2020, and that vaccine development is a matter of when and not if. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has been sequenced. It's more stable and mutates less rapidly than HIV does, or than the coronavirus that causes the common cold does, which makes it easier to study and makes developing a vaccine more likely. Nor are scientists starting from scratch. The research that was done on the SARS-CoV-1 virus, that's the one that caused the SARS outbreak in 2003 and 2004, is informing work on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's the one that causes COVID-19. There are currently 13 human trials underway around the world and 128 preclinical projects. If a vaccine is developed before the end of 2020 or even in early 2021, it will be the fastest vaccine development in human history. Ambitious? Perhaps. But what we are witnessing right now across the planet is not just a global pandemic, but also the most extensive, most technologically advanced hunt for a vaccine the world has ever seen. All of this matters because governments have, in many cases, tied their reopening plans to the availability of a vaccine, or at least of effective treatments for COVID-19. British Columbia, for example, which is currently in phase two of its reopening plan, has said that it will only reach phase four once there is widespread vaccination, community immunity, or broadly successful treatments. New Brunswick is currently at the yellow stage of its reopening plan, but will only make it to the green level once a vaccine is available, or until we have learned more about how to protect people from the coronavirus. Ontario's reopening plan, meanwhile, says that the province will see gradual easing of restrictions until either a vaccine is developed or effective treatment is available. However hopeful we may be, that could still be years away. To help us understand what the coming stages of the pandemic will look like and what vaccine science could mean for employers and employees, I spoke with Dr. Natasha Crowcroft. You may remember Dr. Crowcroft from Episode 5. She is an internationally recognized expert in immunization and was, at the time of our interview, the director of the Center for Vaccine Preventable Diseases at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. By the time you hear this, though, she may well have started her new job as the Senior Technical Advisor, Measles and Rubella Control, at the World Health Organization. We spoke on Tuesday, June 23rd. Dr. Crowcroft, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for inviting me back. When we last spoke, and when I say we, I mean you and your son, Solomon McKenzie, our then articling student, now incoming associate, we were at the very early stages of this pandemic. Now we're looking toward a post-pandemic world. Businesses, governments, individuals are thinking about what reopening might look like. And part of that conversation is the development of a vaccine. How likely is it, in your view, that we will indeed see a vaccine for COVID-19, or rather the virus that causes COVID-19, and how soon do you think we're likely to see it? So that question has been asked many times, and I think um, 
it's difficult to answer because there uh, it's quite a it's much more complex than it seems i can answer it in two ways in other in other words i can say like simply i'm very confident there will be a vaccine um and i'm pretty confident it's going to come fairly quickly because we have uh, just this incredible situation right now where the amount of, uh, of scientific expertise that is being thrown at solving this problem, like the planet's never seen anything like this before. Human beings have never been at this stage in science and have never put this much effort into solving a problem this quickly. So um, I'm, I'm confident, and that's a very, but that's a very superficial answer because at the same time, I can answer that same question by saying, we're not going to have a vaccine anytime soon. And even when a vaccine is available or several vaccines are available, they're not going to be available to most of us. So I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to confuse people, but there are these two different aspects to it. The progress that's being made down very different avenues to, to get to a vaccine is phenomenal. And there are vaccines already being tried out in humans and moving through incredibly quickly. And nobody's taking any shortcuts on the safety they're just doing everything much faster than um, than normally happens because because what's happened is the risk involved in developing a vaccine has been sort of taken off the shoulders of the developers really so that that they can just get on with trying to solve the problem. But it, you know, getting a vaccine that works even in a pretty big study and getting a vaccine that works in real people and and having enough of that vaccine those are actually very different problems to solve. So we've got a while to go before we know the answer to, you know, when would, for example, your clients have a vaccine they could use to have their workers back in their office? So I understand that there's a huge amount of uncertainty, but from a scientific perspective, what are the specific factors that you look at in considering or assessing the likelihood of developing a vaccine in, say, the next year? What is it that you would be watching for as you review the scientific literature and the media reports that we are seeing about vaccine development that would indicate that this unprecedented global effort is starting to bear fruit? So from, from a scientific perspective, um, one of the big questions is what kind of immunity um, the vaccine generates. And that, that's quite a complex question in itself, but you need to, um, you, you need the vaccine to give people what we would call neutralizing antibodies. So those are antibodies that actually work at literally neutralizing the virus um, and you can make a vaccine that that people respond to and make anti antibodies to but they have to make the right kinds of antibodies so really examining the detail of the antibody response that people make in these trials that are going on the clinical trials are going on right now um, is going to be really important and and related to that is there's another type of immunity called uh, cell mediated immunity and we're very interested in that as well and the reason for that is because the number one concern when you're making a new vaccine is making sure it's safe. And there are some concerns that if people make the wrong kind of immune response, that, that the vaccine could either not work at all, or it could have a safety issue that we don't really know what that would look like. But we have had experience in the past where viral vaccines have caused, have actually increased the risk of problems rather than decreased them. Um, and that's something that everyone is very aware of. So it's a very important part of these trials to make sure that the vaccines are going to, you know, going to work and are going to be safe. And you need a lot of data. You need to look at a vaccine in tens of thousands of people, really, before you give any approval to use the vaccine in the general population. And then even after that, you need to carry on tracking what happens to people when they get the vaccine 
as it's used in more and more different kinds of people. So that's generally the things we're looking for. Well, in the case of COVID-19, there are some groups that are particularly at risk of this disease. And you know, the, the deaths in particular are really, really concentrated in, in older people and in men. Sorry, Adam, it's, it seems <laughs> to have a male bias. And in ethnic minorities, you know, black and minority ethnic groups experience terrible carnage at the hands of this virus. So there are specific groups for whatever reason are really doing badly with this virus. And, and so those same groups will need to be looked at very carefully because that will affect how this vaccine will work if it, and how we use the vaccine. So to, to give you an, an example, say we have a vaccine that works really well in young, healthy people, but it doesn't work well in older people. Um, then the strategy is going to have to be, right, let's get everyone who's healthy immunized. Everyone, everyone needs to step up and get, and, and get this vaccine so that we can protect the older people, the seniors amongst us. So that would be a potential strategy if it turns out the vaccine is really only uh, works best in younger, in younger people. So that's, you know, that's one scenario I can, I can see happening quite easily because we know that as you get older, people make less good uh, responses to vaccines. Um, we know that from the flu vaccine and from, from other vaccines. So in order to figure out and to assess the safety and the effect of a potential vaccine on particular populations, I assume that involves phase three clinical trials, which involve injecting human subjects with a, with a potential vaccine. And then, as you say, assessing their reaction potentially over, over the long term. I, I don't know a ton about this area of science, but from what I do know, Phase three trials can take decades. And when you have a complex, little understood disease like COVID-19, that would seem to me to suggest that it, it might be over-optimistic to assume that we could go from zero to a tested, safe vaccine within 18 months or even two years, which as far as I know has never been done in the history of humanity. So where are the bright spots for optimism? Where are the green shoots of hope that we should look for if we want as Anthony Fauci told Congress on June the 23rd that uh, there might be a vaccine coming to market by the end of 2021 even. Yeah, so, well, it is a, we're in a very different situation to normal. So we're not in the same situation of a clinical trial where uh, a company is having to spend a fortune on a clinical trial with the possibility that it, the vaccine fails and they lose all their money. Right now, we're in a situation where uh, there's an enormous amounts of government support for these studies and um, partnerships between industry and the government and the public sector, private public partnerships that mean that the risk has been taken off the shoulders of the people who normally fund these kinds of studies. And that's really important because it means that you can scale up these big clinical trials much more quickly than would normally happen. And then on the other side of it, I think one of the things that slows down clinical trials or has in the past is it just takes a long time to recruit people because, you know, it takes a certain kind of person who wants to be in a clinical trial. And if it's for a theoretical disease that you, you know, you're not going to catch an infection that you've never heard of and you're not likely to catch yourself, then, you know, there are very few people who are going to be stepping up and saying, I'd like to participate in this study. But in contrast with this situation where you have a global public health emergency where people are worried about getting the virus themselves and worried about giving it to their nearest and dearest, where it's not, they're not in that situation. People are not struggling to find volunteers for the clinical trials. 
so if you have the money and the volunteers then you can do clinical and you know and the staff to scale up these studies you can do them much more quickly because uh, you know a clinical trial takes a long time if you're recruiting 20 people a week but if you can recruit you know 100 people a day if you have the facility to do that and, and immunize that many people and track them you can get big numbers of people studied very very quickly uh, and in a lot of detail and the other thing that helps with all of this is the advances in technology and how um, we can follow people up. In the old days, clinical trials involved you know, painstaking individual phone calls, um, which would take a, a professional a long time to go through everybody who was participating in that study and ring them to make sure they're okay and collect information they need. These days, a lot of these things can be done using technology and it's much, much quicker to get through the, the kind of get very high quality data on what's going on. At, yeah. at the risk of, of wading into scientific waters deeper than I'm capable of swimming in, as I, as I again, as I understand it, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the, the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is of the same type of virus, the same coronavirus family, and that is almost certainly the wrong word, uh, that causes the common cold and is not dissimilar in terms of being an RNA virus from the viruses that cause HIV and AIDS and hepatitis C. Assuming that I'm right in what I've just said, are there scientific differences that we're beginning to understand beyond the resource constraints being removed and there being the, the more ready ability to find test subjects and, and the, the ability to follow up with trial participants? Are there scientific differences that we've observed in this coronavirus that makes us more hopeful of finding a, a virus a vaccine that addresses this novel coronavirus as opposed to all the other coronaviruses and RNA viruses that I mean, AIDS and HIV virus was uh, isolated by scientists 30 years ago now. And in, in the 80s, there was talk of a vaccine within a number of years, and there still isn't one. Where in the science do we find the optimism beyond the resource constraints and the resource differences and the population differences that you just mentioned? Right. Well, so the, we know a lot more about this virus um, and how it behaves. And we're, and we're learning all the time. I mean, during this pandemic, the amount of research is going on is, is huge. Um, I, I think the comparison, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but an RNA virus, I mean, there, you know, there are DNA viruses and there are RNA viruses. Two different RNA viruses could be as different as the difference between, I don't know, a, you know, a mouse and a human being. You, just because there are both RNA viruses doesn't mean there's any comparison to be made. And the challenges making an HIV virus are immense because the virus is changing all the time within somebody as well as you know as it spreads from one person to another so one of the notes of optimism for this virus is it's not like that it all viruses change over time but this one is not evolving at that speed and so we have a certain amount of stability in this virus which will mean it's not like influenza where we're trying to chase a new thing you know we're we've got a virus that's going to be pretty stable and so developing a vaccine in that situation is much easier than it is for viruses like HIV. So that's a positive. Um, I think the, the challenge for this virus is that people's natural immunity doesn't seem to last that long um, for the other coronaviruses. You don't seem to get long lasting immunity. So that's somewhere where we're trying to, it's always harder to, <laughs> hard to improve on nature. Like most of our best vaccines mimic natural naturally acquired immunity you get you know if you have an infection you get a certain kind of immunity afterwards and that and the vaccine tries to to mimic the uh, the immunity you get without causing the disease 
And in this case, we haven't got that model to follow, but what we do have are these advances in science that enable us to look at the virus, the, the way the virus was sequenced incredibly quickly and, and, and read it like a, it's a series of letters on the, when you look at the sequence, but it's not, it's not that anymore. We've been able to translate those letters into what that means in terms of the shape of the virus and what it looks like and what pieces stick out and what those pieces look like and what will stick to them best. You know, it's, it's a very three dimensional world. People are, you know, people are able, able to translate this kind of binary data into these amazing images. And, and so, so designing these vaccines is, is just, there's a step up in that, that whole process that is, you know, I don't know, it's a bit like a renaissance in science to me, just to see how it's progressing so quickly. If we step away from vaccines for a moment and entertain the possibility that despite all of the notes of optimism that there are, that we may not have a vaccine or we may not have one anytime soon. The other alternative that's been suggested as a threshold for beginning to see a return to something that begins to feel more like normal is the development of effective treatments for COVID-19. And we've just in the last couple of weeks seen some promising results out of Oxford University, seeing that dexamethasone, which is a well-known anti-inflammatory, has uh, increased the rapidity of recovery in some patients with COVID-19. There are other uh, examples like that where drugs that already exist are having a positive effect. What is the difference, if there is one, from a public health standpoint and considering public health measures in response to COVID-19 between the development of effective or, or often effective treatments for COVID-19 and the development of a vaccine for the virus that causes COVID-19? Um, and it's an interesting question. I mean, the, you know, having effective treatments just is the most amazing, like takes the pressure off everyone and takes the fear out of the picture for everyone who's trying to live with the virus, but they're very rarely perfect. And, you know, it's the old adage that prevention is always better than cure. So from a public health perspective, waiting for people to get sick and then treating them. Um, and then however effective it is, it's not going to be hundred percent in everyone. You know, that's never going to be as, as effective as, as prevention through a vaccine for something that is this widespread. I mean, it, it, it varies a lot from, disease to disease with very rare diseases it may be that treatment is the only or best option but for an infectious disease that that's as widespread as this you know generally a vaccine is going to be the best solution longer term but in the short term like having treatment and it is fantastic and you know and, and it is it's quicker to get treatments um evaluated because when you're having as many cases as we have you know from the ethics perspective you're treating somebody who's already sick you know the risk benefit is very different to giving a vaccine to somebody who's who's healthy um so these the, the trials of treatments are are easier to do to be honest than vaccine trials and so you know i hope this is one of the first of many uh, pieces of good news about about treatment i don't think it's going to remove the need for a vaccine it's just going to help us at least take take some of the fear out of the picture and, and enable people to go back to work without that sort of, is it going to be me? And you know, if one of my loved ones gets sick, what's going to happen to them? On the subject of going back to work, let's assume for a moment that there are effective treatments or treatments that work for some people that are recognized and there's a scientific consensus around whatever drug that if you give it to a patient with COVID-19, there are good odds that if they're 
if they meet certain characteristics, they're going to recover more quickly or, or sustain less significant damage to their various systems. If we get those sorts of treatments online in the next year or so, but we don't yet have a vaccine, what does the world look like? If you were a public health official in a Canadian jurisdiction, and not only that, but had the magic wand to just impose whatever public health measures were necessary in order to deal with the situation as I've just described it, what would the workday look like? What would the commute look like? What would the everyday existence of, of Canadians in that world with effective treatments but no vaccine look like compared to what we're currently experiencing? I think one of the big challenges we're facing is how, how unequal the world is when it comes to all of those questions, because there are, um, there's been this revolution for some people in society where they've been able to switch to working at home. As I mean, as I have personally, I can do a ton of my ton of my work at home The stuff I don't like doing at home. I'd love to be uh, in meetings for some things, but an awful lot of what I do, I can do at home. And then there's a whole bunch of people who who just can't do that. Their jobs, you know, if you're working in a laboratory, you have to be in the laboratory with the equipment. If you're working in a supermarket, you have to be there, you know. So um, so the world right now is in, the Canadian world is looking, or has been looking pretty unequal in that sense. You know, our view of what essential workers looks like has changed because we've realised we actually do need people to be stocking those supermarket shelves. And um, so, you know, I'm hoping that whatever happens I, I, I'm not sure that the treatment aspect, it will take some of the pressure off, but you know, how, how is the world going to be different? I think it's really hard to say. Um, and, and I'm not sure that data on the treatment is going to be the thing that really drives how we live differently. One really interesting aspect, for example, is what, what we're doing in terms of where you have a lockdown is incredibly, it's an incredibly blunt instrument. You shut everything down. Um, when you look around the world, countries have done lots of different things. And I think one of the things that we need to really learn from, um, which is not the basic science, it's the public health piece, is to understand better what works and what doesn't work and where the highest risk environments are. I mean, we're learning as we go. We know that being inside is much higher risk of transmission than being outside. So we are learning some things, but how to run public transport if you... If you want to keep six feet distance between people, it's almost impossible with public transport. So, you know, if you say everybody has to wear masks on public transport, then, well, how do you enforce that? I mean, you know, I go out and about, I don't see everybody wearing masks, even people who I look at think, well, you really should be just for yourself, if not for anybody else, you know. So there are lots of those sort of day-to-day questions that are more about nudging behavior Sometimes they're going to be legal questions about making things mandatory. And they also are about how we want to be as a society and how we want to treat people and how we want to uh, value different types of work that we have. And I, you know, I'm a bit reminded of what happened in Europe after the Black Death, which came towards the end of the Middle Ages, where so many um, people died that there was nobody to harvest the crops. There was no one to plant you know, and tend tend for the field. So the, you know, the whole relationship between the the aristocracy and the serfs changed because the people who owned the land didn't have anybody to work it. And so they then had to be, um, you know, they had to be a lot nicer and uh, look after people. And it, it did change that relationship dramatically. And, you know, so I, that was a different situation because the whole population was badly affected and all ages here we have this concentration in older age groups that's uncovered all sorts of uh, 
problems with how we've been looking after seniors um, in Canada. Um, I, I just really hope that that changes, that we change the way in which we look after each other. But the, the specifics of the best way to keep people safe in that environment, beyond what, you know, keeping distance, regularly washing your hands, wearing a mask, um, having a very active public health response where people are tested, um, actively tested and contacts are followed up actively. That is going to be much more nuanced and we need a different kind of research to figure that out. And one really interesting area, and I think it's going to change, like we're going to learn more about how to do this more safely. One really interesting aspect that's been coming up recently is this idea of super spreaders. And during the 2003 SARS outbreak, there was a lot of discussion of super spreaders. And that's this idea that um, it's not just about how many people on average each infected person passes on infection to this is the basic reproduction number but it's not just the average it's also how much that varies so you know do most people spread zero infections and a few people spread a lot or you know does everyone spread about the same number of infections to other people and it's increasingly looking like these super spreading events where one person or maybe a couple of people can spread to an awful lot of other people um, and then most people only spread to, well, you know, could be less than, on average, less than, less than one or zero. Um, it seems to be increasing the case, which is actually a positive news, because if you can figure out those, the environment in which super spreading occurs, what it is about the person or the place it happened or, you know, the, the people who were there, something about the event, um, that would allow us to be more targeted in, in what we're advising. Um, you know, in terms of the numbers who can gather together and where they can gather together and um, what they can do with each other. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of publicity about um, the choir, that uh, there was a, a lot of spread at a, a concert uh, between a choir, choir members. And that, you know, that was an example where everyone's saying, well, of course, everyone's singing. And so that's really a good way of spreading virus to these people who are inside and in close proximity to each other. You know, that's an obvious example of a super spreading event. But there are there are others, and you know if we can study this well enough, we may well be able to say, okay, you know, well, if you're, for example, working in an office on the fiftieth floor with a, an elevator, if everybody who gets into the elevator wears a mask, and there's only, you know, and you restrict the numbers to whatever, it depends on the size of the, you know, maybe four or five people in that elevator, um, that, and they're only going to be in the elevator for you know a matter of a minute or so that that's, that is an acceptable risk. Um, but right now we don't, we don't actually know that kind of information, which is going to be really important because there are an awful lot of office blocks where, that are currently you know, not being used and where we don't really know how to get people back into them. Um, it's, not, <laughs> so it's not rocket science, these kinds of questions, but it is science and you need good studies to figure these kinds of questions out. Right. Well, you're speaking to someone whose office is on the 47th floor, so that that hits very close to home. I, I, I wonder, when, when you're looking at the, the future of this pandemic and the, the trajectory that we can, we can anticipate the response to COVID-19 looking like, granted that we still need to learn a whole lot more before we can relax the restrictions on physical distance and on social interactions, in a way that will begin to resemble what life was like before, say, March of this year. What are the sort of thresholds that we can expect to hit 
next in terms of the, emer the, the emergence of scientific knowledge with respect to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and with respect to our understanding of the public health response to that virus that will make our lives more closely resemble what used to be called normal. So what, what are the next kind of landmarks that we should all be expecting as we plan our futures and our return to something that begins to feel like normalcy? Well, I'm trying to stay, <laughs> trying to stay positive. Um, <laughs> I'm, but I, I, I'm struggling a bit with that question because it's there's a sort of underlying assumption that we're on a pathway, a kind of linear pathway towards normalcy. And I've kind of seen this more as we've got a mountain range to cross and there are going to be peaks and valleys in that. So currently, you know, many jurisdictions are, are relaxing certain measures and saying, okay, more people can join together and more people can do, you know, can go out and, you know, that sort of, okay, you can leave the home. Um, and then we're watching very closely, but there is a risk as has been seen recently, um, for example, in Germany, where they, you know, started relaxing things and then, and then of course, transmission picks up again. We've got to be watching it. It's not going to be a, like we get to this threshold and then we step forward and we're you know, a little bit closer to normalcy. I think we're going to be going forwards and backwards as we figure this out. It's more like we're feeling our way with our eyes slightly closed. And as research comes through, there'll be more and more light shone on what we can and can't do. And until we know the answers to these questions about what we can and can't do, it's going to be hard to say what those thresholds are going to be because it, it isn't straightforward. And, um, you know, as a public health person, it's easy for me to say, well, you know, we've all got to stay at home and follow the advice, but there's many other things to consider. And uh, you know, if, if we end up in an economic meltdown, then that's going to cause massive health issues as well. So, you know, these are really, really hard decisions. And the biggest problem with these decisions is that they're, explicitly making decisions about putting people's health at risk in a way that we don't normally we don't normally know we're doing so all the time governments make decisions that lead um lead to people living and dying you know how much you spend on healthcare is the obvious one but you know how you design your roads um changes the risk of of traffic accidents and your you know everything has got a risk associated with it it's just we don't normally articulate it quite in this way um, where with infectious diseases, you're very aware if you increase the risk of infectious disease, you're, you're increasing the risk to yourself and to others. So I, I don't know that, that that pathway and those thresholds are, is completely clear yet. What's most important is that we have really smart people generating the right kind of evidence and looking at it to help inform their decisions at each step of the way. So what I'm hearing from you is a, a call for patience, that this will take a while and that we have a lot of known unknowns that need to become known before we can even seriously talk about uh, life in February 2020 being life again. I think that's a very good way of, of summarizing it. I think patience and the other thing that Dr. Bonnie Henry is called for often is is kindness, you know, patience and kindness. I think that is going to be really important. I mean, the bottom line is that this is not an existential threat, the, this virus to humanity. It's a definite public health threat. But compared to um, some of the plagues of history, 
this is not going to threaten the existence of humanity but this virus is going to take a lot of us with it take a lot of us away so we you know it's impossible to ignore but we are learning what to do about it all the time well i will i will take that as a concluding note of optimism that uh, that for all its many detriments and for all of the the harm that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has caused and will cause there is every indication that this is not the 13th or 14th century and we are not about to live through a true plague and that science is at the there is every indication at least that science is up to the task of responding to this virus and to this pandemic in a way that humanity has never been able to respond before is that fair to say that's a very uh, that's an excellent way to put it okay thank, thank you for articulating it better than i did <laughs> well you know i'm i'm a lawyer it's my job to be more optimistic i guess than uh, than than those who actually spend their days looking at all the data but i'm, I'm happy to perform that service for you dr crowcroft <laughs> thank you so much for your time and for your insight this has been incredibly educational and i hope that despite the fact that you're off to, well, you're off to Geneva, at least by video conference, that we can have you back and draw on your insights in the future as, as we continue to understand what lies ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Dr. Natasha Crowcroft is the outgoing director of the Center for Vaccine Preventable Diseases at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and the incoming senior technical advisor, measles and rubella control at the World Health Organization. This has been episode 17 of Law in the Time of COVID-19. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We also hope you'll send us your suggestions for future episodes. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Adam Goldenberg or by email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca. Pour plus de contenu de McCarthy Tetro, ne manquez pas notre balado, Le droit au temps de la COVID-19, animé par ma collègue, Christelle Chevalier. This episode was produced by Chloe Thomas, Abby Stafford, and Miriam Veilleux. Our researcher for this episode was Madison Howell, a rising 3L at Western University Faculty of Law and a summer student here in the Toronto office of McCarthy Tetro. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Tommy Barbieri, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramertz, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tetro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 Recovery Hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands. <laughs>